0: Last week, we kicked off a new sermon series called Miracles, where we're looking at the extraordinary power of God in everyday life. Now, the thing about these miracles is that Jesus performed them, and we're looking at these things over the next several weeks, but These are not just magic tricks that he performed. These are not just times when he got caught up in the moment, healing people left and right. In many cases, these miracles of Jesus served as a deeper purpose, a fuller revelation of who Jesus is and why he came. So, one of the goals in this series is that we would all have a better understanding of who Jesus is, that we would experience him more fully in our own lives. And so what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be looking at the very first miracle that Jesus performed. And we're going to be looking at this out of John chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible with you today, or you can grab one of the pew rack in front of you, but I want to invite you to join me in John chapter 2. Now, as you're turning in your Bibles, let me just say this. This is a popular story, even if you're not very religious, even if you're not uh, very familiar with the Bible, but, but somewhere along the way, a lot of people have heard this phrase, water into wine. Even for us here today, if, you are, if you've been around the church, if you've been around the block, if you, uh, have, uh, if you know your Bible well, this is a very common story that is that you're probably very familiar with and the problem is though that familiarity can often breed contempt and it's very easy for us to miss what's going on here in fact let me just say this there is a lot more going on in this miracle right here than most people realize i want to go ahead and uh, give you a little bit of a preview of where we're going today we're going to put this on the screen but we are going to see this miracle reveal four different things about jesus and here they are here are the four things we're going to see who jesus is what jesus came to do what Jesus offers, and how to receive it. Those are the four things that we're going to be focusing on throughout our time today. And we are going to specifically come back to those things at the end of this message. And what I want to do here is to first read through this entire miracle, and then we're going to go back and we're going to talk a little bit about it. So, your Bibles open in front of you, John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. We'll put these words up on the screen as well. Here's what we read about this wedding in Cana. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, in what has to be one of the most awkward conversations in all of the New Testament, here it is. She says, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. John's writing this here, and he, he's writing as if he were an eyewitness. He was right there at this wedding watching all of this unfold, and he gives us all of these details here. Reading on in verse 6, it says this, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Now, I want you to picture this here for a moment. And um, this is, th- these are huge jars, okay? Don't picture just some kind of small little pitcher of water. This is 20 or 30 gallons of water each of these uh, jars are. And you know what? I wasn't going to be able to carry a, a jar, a stone jar, that could hold 20 or 30 gallons of water all by myself in here. And so I, I tried to find the next best thing. And um, that's why I brought along with me this morning a trash can, okay? Now, I, I don't know if anyone would, would, would really want to put any water in this thing and then, and then especially wouldn't want to drink out of this thing, but this can here is a, a bit of an illustration, okay? It's, a, it's an example of just how big one of these jars would have been. This can is a 32-gallon can. It holds 32 gallons, all right? A little bit bigger than what it is that we're talking about here in this passage, but you kind of get a bit of the idea here of what this thing was, how big this would have been, okay? So I'll just set that there, but John's talking about these six stone jars who are at this, that are at this wedding here, and they're all about this size, that, that would have been a lot of water that Jesus turned into a lot of wine. A hundred and eighty gallons we're talking about here. So verse seven goes on to say, Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water and they filled them with, uh, up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. And then look at verse 11. Verse 11 is so important. Don't read past this. It says, This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now, I want to go back and talk about this miracle here. And as we talk about it, um, want to look at it in four different scenes. But before we talk about that, I just want to uh, address a few foundational things in order to kind of understand the context of this before we go diving into the text. And so the first thing, it just is this. I hope that you notice that this is the first miracle, the first sign that Jesus did. And this is significant. If you're newer to the Bible, it's important to know that generally speaking, the first things are very significant. The first man, the first sin, the first uh, book, the first verse, the first commandment. Here we read Jesus's first miracle, which is at a, which takes place at a wedding. Now, something that you also need to understand and notice about this miracle is that it is a very quiet miracle. Not not everybody knows what's happening. Only the servants and the disciples pick up on what's happening. that that this miracle has even occurred because if I was Jesus and we can all be thankful that I'm not Jesus but if I were Jesus I I was uh, and I was about to launch my public ministry I would do something a a little bit different I'd be be a little bit more spectacular in the way that I do things uh, rather than just turning water into wine I mean You think back of bringing people back from the dead. I mean, that's pretty amazing. Walking on water, incredible. Providing dinner for 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Crazy. Those things are pretty spectacular. But this? I mean, this is just a social embarrassment on the groom's part. This is not a life and death situation. Jesus is solving a problem at a party. So... Why water into wine? Well, John gives us a little bit of a hint here. I told you not to read over verse 11 quickly, but look again at what it says. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Listen, this is not just a miracle, but this is actually a sign. And what do signs do? Well, they they point to something, right? This is intended to point to something else. And so this miracle is revealing something about Jesus and what he came to do, what he will do. Friends, it's no coincidence that Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding. The Bible begins and ends with a wedding and this miracle at this wedding is a sign that points us to the wedding that is to come. The real feast that is coming when Jesus and his bride, the church, will come together. When God will establish the new heavens and the new earth and there will be no more pain or no more suffering. That Jesus will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That is what we are looking forward to, and this miracle here is pointing forward to that wedding, to that feast, that, that wedding feast of the Lamb, where we're going to be joined together with Jesus forever and ever and ever. And so this is the first sign of Jesus. It's pointing forward to what's coming. But then secondly, I want you to notice that Jesus began his public ministry as, at a wedding, at a party. I mean, Jesus did not launch his public ministry on a Sunday in Sunday school class or at a small group or at, a, uh, te- at the temple. His first miracle, his first sign took place at a wedding, and it took place at a party in order to make this party continue to, to go on. And, you know, don't get me wrong here. Uh, this is not talking about everybody being drunk. running around with lampshades on their heads, dancing on top of the tables. Jesus is not leading the Macarena. He's not uh, doing the Cupid Shuffle or TikTok dances or anything like that, okay? But, But this is a party, and I think that that's important for us to understand and acknowledge that Jesus knew how to celebrate, and his followers should too. Friends, We have the best news in the world. The tomb is empty. He is risen. He is seated on the throne. One day he is going to make everything new and we are going to rule and reign with him forever. And so we have every reason to celebrate. Jesus came to bring joy and not to take joy. Grace has come in Jesus. Grace upon grace upon grace. And His grace has made us glad. We should celebrate. We should be glad. Why? Because if we are in Christ, our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is removed. Death is defeated. The kingdom is coming. In this world, we will suffer. We will have trials. We will have hardships. But Jesus tells us to take heart because he has overcome the world. We may have sorrow in the night, but friends, listen, joy comes in the morning. So we, are, we, we can always be rejoicing. Jesus has come to give us joy and his grace has made us glad But then just one more thing here at the beginning, number three. I just want to talk a little bit about this fact that Jesus turned water into wine. I know some people can really struggle with this, that Jesus made wine. But I think it's important to acknowledge that Jesus didn't do anything illegal. He didn't do anything sinful. In fact, what we're going to see here, that Jesus actually did a very beautiful and gracious thing. He gives this incredible gift to this groom. And let me also just say this, that uh, I think sometimes people have been told that this is just grape juice. It's just watered down. It's not very strong or something like that. But, But I don't think that's true. I mean, nobody gets excited about 80 gallons of grape juice. This is real wine, and I think that's important to to, uh, acknowledge, and then also to understand that in the Old Testament, um, this is something that's talked about a lot, that God gives wine as a sign of, of his joy, of his blessing. Now, listen, we're talking about wine. We're not talking about drunkenness. Wine was a symbol of God's joy and God's blessing, and so If we could just not get hung up on the fact that Jesus made wine that had alcohol in it, I mean, because if we get hung up on that, we're going to miss the whole point of this miracle and what Jesus is doing in this moment. And so, those are just a few things that I want to address here at the beginning to lay as a foundation for what it is that we're going to be looking here this morning. But. Well, let's go back to the story now, and I want to look at it in four scenes. So, scene number one, a joyous celebration, a joyous celebration. John begins here in verse 1 by saying, On the third day there was a wedding at Canaan, Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Well, I want you to notice the people who were at this wedding. I mean, first, there's Jesus' mother, Mary, is there? We don't know if she had some responsibilities as a caterer or if she was there uh, because she was related to somebody. We don't know all the details about that, but she, she was there because she comes up to Jesus and she says, hey, the wine is gone. Secondly, Jesus and his disciples are there. At this point in his ministry, he has five disciples. And we, we read later on in John chapter 21 that Nathaniel, one of his disciples, is literally from Cana in Galilee. Maybe Nathaniel is related to somebody who's getting married. We, we don't know exactly why all of them are there, but we do know that Mary, Jesus, his disciples are all at this wedding. Now, Let me just say this about weddings in that day as well. Weddings in Palestine were a big deal. And I know that today weddings can be a big deal as well uh, with all of these brides saying yes to the dress and all of that. But weddings back then were a huge deal. The whole village would come out and celebrate this wedding. Sometimes these weddings would last for an entire week. People would take off of work. They would uh, stop everything that they were doing uh, to be there. Also, it was socially unacceptable to turn down a wedding invitation. If you got invited, you had to go. And so we're talking about a lot of people being at this wedding, which I think is part of the reason why Jesus makes so much wine here there's a party going on. It's a joyous celebration. Everybody's having a great time until you get to verse three and we read in scene number two, a ruinous situation. We go from a joyous celebration to a ruinous situation. It says in verse three, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now, This may not seem like a big deal to us. I mean, if we run out of drinks or food at a party, what do we do? We just go down to the local store and fix it, right? No big deal. But in this culture, it was a big deal because when you ran out of wine, literally the party was over. Wine was customary at parties. Not only was it customary, but it was symbolic. It represented joy and blessing and celebration in the Jewish culture. And... Not only would the party be over, but the, the, to, to run out of wine would have brought social embarrassment, would have brought um, uh, shame on the family. It, it's a culture that emphasizes honor and shame. And, and for the married couple, I mean, you, you, you fail to throw a great party. This is going to affect your reputation for years to come. This is a social disaster. And listen, that's no way to start a marriage. In that day, the financial responsibility of the wedding belonged to the groom. And all of the dads in the the room who have daughters say amen to that, right? But, but the groom was responsible to provide this great party. It, it, if It was not actually out of the realm of possibility in this moment for the bride's family to literally sue the groom and the groom's family If there was failure to provide adequate provisions at the wedding. And so we're talking about a big deal right here. I mean, this is not, oh, we just ran out of drinks. Let's run down to the local store and get some. No, this is much bigger than that. And everyone is unaware of this, except for a few people. One of those is Mary, the mother of Jesus, So Mary comes to Jesus, and like I said earlier, this had to have been one of the most awkward conversations in all the New Testament. But she says, Jesus, hey, hey Jesus, come over here. I, I need to talk to you for a moment. They have no more wine. I want you to think about that. If you're Jesus, how do you respond in that moment right there? I mean, if you're Jesus, do you say, "Uh, uh, Mom, I'm 30 years old. Please stop with the chore chart. Or do you say, hey, uh, by the way, I am the Son of God. I made you. So just back off a little bit, girl. What, What does Jesus do here? And why is it that Mary comes to Jesus anyway? I think that's pretty important for us to understand here. Number one, I think that she comes to Jesus because it's safe to say that by this time, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, is dead. I mean, we don't see him. He's not at the crucifixion. He's not at the cross. In fact, the last time that Joseph is even mentioned in the Bible is when Jesus is 12 years old and they literally left him at the temple. And so chances are that Joseph has passed on and in this culture, the oldest son would then assume the responsibilities for mom in this situation. And so for many years, and we don't know how many years this has been going on, but Mary has probably been coming to Jesus when she has any kinds of needs that she might, that might arise. If she needs something, if something's going off, if something breaks at the house, she comes to Jesus, Here, she has an issue, she has a problem, and she comes running to Jesus. That's a very good habit for us as well, that we ourselves come running to Jesus. So first, she probably went to Jesus because when the wine ran out, I mean, this is the person that she ran to with all of her problems. But then secondly, I think Mary is coming to Jesus here because Mary knows that Jesus is the Messiah. I mean, she knows this is true. That The fact that she got pregnant by the Holy Spirit was evidence enough that Jesus is the Messiah. And so when Jesus shows up at this wedding with, with his five disciples, Mary has been thinking, listen, I know what the angels said to me many years ago and, and, and there have been all these events that have happened in my life and, and, and Jesus, maybe this is a good time for you to start your public ministry. Now, I don't know if she had a miracle in mind or not, but maybe she's thinking, hey, this is a good time to start your public ministry. At any rate, whatever the reason, Mary comes to Jesus and she says, hey, they don't have any wine. And in verse four, he his response to her is so classic. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Can I just say to you, men?" This is a fantastic verse to use if you want to find yourself in trouble, okay? You come home from work. Your wife has been taking care of the kids all day. You walk in the door. She says, these kids are just driving me crazy. And you say, woman, what does that have to do with me? Listen, it's not going to go well with you if you do that. You know, you read this and you think, is Jesus being a little disrespectful to mama here? I don't think that Jesus is actually being disrespectful in this moment. I think it's very important for us to understand that he doesn't reference her as mom, but rather he references her in this generic term of woman. And really, I think what he's, what it would be like us saying maybe today is, hey, hey, ma'am. And listen, I think that's significant. Jesus is not saying, hey, woman, stop with the chore chart. I, I I, rather I think what Jesus is doing here in this moment is kind of redefining this relationship that he has between he and Mary. Literally, what he's saying is, "Hey, you know what? I'm about to start my public ministry, and um, now I'm not your son anymore, but I'm actually your Lord." If I could boil it all down, Jesus is kind of saying, "I love you, Mom." But you're not my boss. I'm actually on a mission. And I am going to accomplish that mission. I need to. From this point forward. We are going to see that. When it comes to Jesus. um, you, You know. Mary is going to have to come to Jesus. Like any other follower of his. She's going to have to come as a disciple. That she will have to submit to him. As the Lord. As her Lord. Because. She is going to be, uh, Jesus rather, Jesus is going to be absolutely resolute in doing the will of God the Father. Love the way D.A. Carson put it. He says this, Now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, everything, including family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. It's a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. Now listen, this is not callousness on Jesus' part. In fact, on the cross, he makes provision for her future, but she, like every other person, must come to him as to the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. So he's redefining the relationship here. And how do we know that he's redefining the relationship here? Because he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? And then he says, because my hour has not yet come. That word hour there, it's actually referring to the cross. And isn't that a bit strange? That in the middle of a wedding celebration, Jesus is talking about the cross? Friends, I think that this is significant because Jesus knows why he came. And his mission is focused on the cross. Now, I think that Mary actually understands this relationship and that it's changing in this moment because she says, hey, Jesus, come over here. They don't have any more wine. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. But then Mary turns to the servants and she says these amazing words in verse 5. Here's what she says, verse 5 do whatever he tells you that is the language of a disciple what does it mean to follow jesus it means that whatever he tells me to do that's what i'm gonna do obedience is a very serious thing to god and mary understands this this is not jesus getting worn down by mary this is not jesus saying okay fine mom get off my back i'll take care of the problem no Jesus is in complete control. Jesus has his own agenda. Jesus knows the big picture, and Jesus will do this great miracle, this sign that is pointing forward to something greater that is coming. That leads us to scene number three, a quiet transformation. We've had a joyous celebration a ruinous situation, oh my goodness, the wine is gone, and now we see a quiet transformation. Verse 6, John says, now there were six stone jar, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. At weddings in the Jewish world, guests would wash their hands and utensils would be cleaned. John is describing how these six stone water jars are there at this celebration. And this is significant because Jesus is about to do something that will point forward towards what he will do at the cross. These stone jars are in the story because of what Jesus is replacing Jesus is replacing the waters of Judaism with the wine of the gospel, the old covenant with the new covenant. When he changes the water into wine, it's a sign of the blood that he's going to shed on the cross in order to cover up sin. In other words... We don't have to go through the ceremonial process of cleansing anymore to enter into the presence of God. All we have to do is to come to Jesus, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, and He will cleanse us. Friends, there's only one way to be made pure, and that is through Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying, a new day has come. I've brought wine. I've brought celebration. I've brought joy. I've brought rejoicing. Why? Because I will make you new. I will wash away your sins. I will uh, cleanse you with myself. And I will take your filth upon myself. That's what Jesus came to do. Remember a number of years ago, sitting down with a young lady talking about the gospel and i'm explaining to her the gospel in the midst of our conversation she turns to me and she says jason uh, i i really want to give my life to jesus but here's the deal you know i i, I there, there there are certain things in my life that i just need to clean up there are certain things that i need to get right before i give my life to jesus i stopped her in that moment and i said listen i, I just want to say this in the kindest way possible But you cannot clean yourself up to come to Jesus. You come to Jesus first and he will clean you up. Friends, it is impossible for us to clean ourselves up. But when we come to Jesus, when we submit ourselves to the lordship of Christ, that he power washes our souls and he cleanses us from all of our sins. There's a great hymn that says this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath the flood. Lose all their guilty stains. Amen. That's our Jesus. And so he says fill them up. Why? Because I'm about to replace those stone jars. I'm about to go to the cross and die for the sins of the world. And so they fill up the jars to the brim, which I just love because God's grace and mercy and love never runs out. Verse 9, they bring this water, this new wine to the master of the feast. And here's what it says. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, And said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Friends, let me tell you something this morning. Jesus is superior to everything that has gone on before him. He is better than he is superior to everyone and everything. Jesus is the good wine. And if you go anywhere outside of Jesus, you are settling for something less than the best. You, If you are looking for the creation to do what only the creator can do, you are going to be left continuing to search and continuing to look. Jesus is the best. There is nothing better than him. And so the groom receives the praise even though he had nothing to do with it he gets the credit for jesus's work but jesus is gracious and loving he doesn't try to say hey listen that was me i did that which leads us to scene number four an effective revelation an effective revelation verse 11 says this the first of his signs jesus did at cana in galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him Now, his disciples didn't believe in him simply because he turned water into wine without using grapes or fermentation. No, it wasn't that. So why did the disciples believe in Jesus? Well, I think it's because they understood their Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, the Messiah is associated with a wedding associated with a feast, with joy, with wine. You can read about it in Jeremiah and Joel, in Amos and Isaiah, where the Messiah is associated with a celebration, with a party, with wine. The old is gone, the new has come. The disciples get a glimpse of the fact that the Messiah had come, and Jesus is saying, look, it's a wedding. Everybody's laughing, wine is flowing, the the Messiah is here, and... His disciples believed in him. So let me just kind of come back here to where it is that we started this morning. What does this miracle show us? Four things. It shows us who Jesus is, what he came to do, what he offers, and how we can receive it. I want to briefly look at each one of those things quickly. First, who is Jesus? In this story, we see that Jesus is the ultimate purifier and the all-providing bridegroom. Jesus is not moved by religious rituals. He he replaces all of the Old Testament purifications and cleansings with his death on the cross and the blood that he shed. There's only one way to be pure, to come to Jesus and to live in him. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is the ultimate purifier, but he's also the all-providing bridegroom. Our Jesus never fails to give us what we need. The life-giving wine of his death in our place, it never runs out. He's the perfect, all-providing husband to his bride, the church. Jesus came to give joy, to bring joy, to rescue, to redeem. Friends, there is no one better than Jesus. Secondly, what did he come to do? He came to die for his bride. In fact, right here in this miraculous uh, miracle that, he, that takes place here, he mentions his death when he says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus knows his mission. He knows why he came. And he, he, he knows that it, it, in order for you and me to drink the cup of joy, he will have to drink the cup of suffering, and, and yet he does it anyway, willingly. With the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross for you and for me. What did he come to do? He came to lay down his life for his bride, the church. Number three, what does he offer? Superior satisfaction. You see, we are told in the scriptures that not only are we to know that the Lord is good, but we are to taste and see that the Lord is good. Jonathan Edwards, he's one of the great preachers from years ago. He used to say that that when we get saved, our hearts get new sensory abilities, that we are a new creation, that we have new affections. Listen, becoming a Christian is not just about signing a doctrinal statement. It's about coming to a feast. It's about finding superior satisfaction. Look, I'll say it again, there is nothing better than Jesus. And if you search, if you go searching and try to have your needs met in any other way, you are setting yourself up for great disappointment. Because there is nothing in yourself, there is nothing in any other person, there is nothing in this world that can give you what Jesus can give you. Fourth and last, how do we receive it? Well, notice what the disciples did. They saw the glory of Jesus and they believed in him. And I love the simplicity of verse 11. They saw his glory and they immediately placed their faith, their trust, their belief in him. In fact, that's why John writes this gospel and says, so that you may believe so that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that you might have life in his name. John chapter 2 is written so that you and I would believe. And friends, I hope today is a day where you would cry out to him and that you would say, God, I believe in you. I trust in you. I love you. I want you to satisfy me. I want to, to, to find uh, every good blessing in you. Remember, Jesus is the Lord of the feast. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. In all our pleasures, Jesus is better. In all our sufferings, Christ is enough. Amen.